So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open it up to Galatians chapter 4. We've got note sheets and pencils or pens coming out uh, as well so that you can take some notes today. Hopefully the things that you learn in a service like this will not just be uh, fuel for the next Bible trivia night, but they will be, in fact, times where God can open our eyes to the ways that He wants to shape us and mold us into men and women who more closely resemble what Christ lived like. We want to be like Christ. We want to walk in a way that is loving and true like Christ walked. We want to walk in a way that is honoring to the Father, in a way that is humble and dependent on God's leading, but also in a way that is bold as we proclaim the truth and as we share with this world the reality that has been made known to us through the word of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And so let's be ready for the word to work in us in mighty ways today as we consider the things that God has to teach us in Galatians chapter 4. So starting in verse 8, Paul is going to interrupt this grand argument that he's been forging. We've been talking about justification by faith alone. This book, the, the, the letter to the Galatians, is in many ways Paul's desire to work in the people of the Galatian churches so that they will not be deceived by false doctrine. He is trying to help them to see what the true gospel is. And the true gospel proclaims that we are made right with God, not by anything that we do ourselves, but by the wonderful and glorious work of Jesus Christ. That we must put our faith and trust in Him and in Him alone. That Jesus plus anything else is a false gospel, is deception to us. That Christ alone is what saves us. And so he's going to, for just a short time, interrupt this argument that he is making for justification by faith to appeal to the hearts of the people in Galatia. He is an apostle, this man, Paul, but there is the heart of a pastor in him as well. Knowing that his friends are facing a serious spiritual threat, he appeals to them. He urges them not to return to the very thing that used to hold them captive, before they began to experience this new freedom in Jesus Christ. And so if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to read just a few verses here from chapter 4 today, beginning with verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to become once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Would you bow with me as we just have a brief word of prayer and ask the Lord to bless our study of these things today. God, make us keenly aware of your truth right now. I pray, Father, that if we carry into this worship service any false understanding of your scripture, that you would be swift to eradicate it from our hearts and minds, Lord. Point out how it is an error and help us to see what is true and to embrace it and to rejoice in the fact that you love us enough to correct us. I pray, Lord God, that your scripture would be the foundation for everything that we believe, that we would not try to force our ideas or opinions upon your text but rather it would just speak plainly to us what we need to see. We love you, Lord God. We depend on you even to worship you in this way as we come before your word. 
Help us to receive it in a way that honors you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The first seven verses of this chapter, the Apostle Paul spoke of the wonderful reality that those who are in Christ Jesus by faith have experienced a new kind of freedom. Prior to faith in Christ, we are, are like ungrown children living under the boundaries of the laws of God. This law acts like a schoolmaster to us or like some kind of a guardian or steward over us. And it won't allow us to live as free men until we are mature enough in Christ to handle that kind of freedom. To trust in Christ is to be set free from that guardian of the law. And when we are set free, we realize our full inheritance as adopted children of God. Now, the law is not a bad thing. We've talked about that. It can still be very useful for us as we live in the grace of Jesus. The fact that we are not under the law anymore doesn't mean we are antinomians. It doesn't mean that we can just do whatever we want to do. God's law still has bearing on our lives. It still directs us and guides us. It still protects us and reveals like a light what God loves and what God desires for our lives. But it doesn't have dominion over us anymore. It's not our master like it used to be. Our master is now also our Abba Father who has redeemed us and has given us full inheritance in his kingdom and in his family by adoption. That was the main thrust of the passage that we studied last week. But here in verses 8 through 11, we see there is still reason for concern in the heart of Paul. He had taught his friends um, the gospel. And he had thought that those Galatians had truly began to walk in mature faith as he looked at their lives and began to see fruit, and as they established good doctrine among them, he had reason to believe that they were true believers. He says in verse 9 that the Galatians have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. And in the Greek language, uh, there are oftentimes verbs that are more nuanced than in the English language. And so if you were to express knowledge in the Greek language, you have three different options on how to say that somebody knows a thing. You could use the Greek word epistemi, which means to be familiar with something. That just means you, you know about it because you've been exposed to it. You, you've seen it in life and, and you've come across it. It's not a total mystery to you. When somebody mentions it, you say, yeah, I got some ideas about that. I've thought about that a little bit. Epistemi talks about the things you're generally aware of, but maybe not an expert on. You haven't really put a lot of time and effort into those things, but you, you know about them. Or you could use the Greek word oida, which is essentially book knowledge. To know something by careful observation or study is to uh, express this Greek concept of oida. I have, I have thought about this a lot. I've really sought out more wisdom on this. I've talked to experts in that field. I feel like I have a strong mental grasp of that thing. I understand it. I know it because I have thought about it, read about it. I have studied it. And there's a third range of understanding when we think about knowing a thing. It's gnosko. And gnosko means to know something by personal experience. I know it because I have lived it. I have experienced it firsthand. I didn't just read about it in a book. I didn't just hear about it from a professor in a classroom. I know about it because I have experienced it with my own life. It has affected me. It has impacted me. So I have a deep knowledge of that thing. The type of knowledge that Paul has in view here 
is this third kind, as he says that the Galatians have known God or have rather been made or have been known by God. To know God in a saving sense, we've got to know more than just know about Him. We've got to, to know more about God than just something that you learn in a book. You've got to be impacted by this God who interrupts your life and reveals Himself to you, primarily through the Scripture. And then as He begins to change you through the evidence of His power to transform. You might notice that Paul clarifies himself in the course of that short verse. He wants us to see that we shouldn't think about our salvation in terms of personal discovery, that we have somehow stumbled upon this God and then have, have come to know Him like our knowledge is something that we have uncovered by our own efforts. Rather, we should acknowledge that God Himself has chosen to know us in an interpersonal sense. By the work of His Son, Jesus Christ, God has revealed Himself to you and has cleared the path to a right relationship so that by entering into this corrected and healed relationship through Christ, you might walk with God. You might experience Him day in and day out. And He has invited you into this. Remember 1 John 4.10, which says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be propitiation for our sins. And so the wonderful mystery of salvation is that God has taken this first step of love toward us, even though we were yet sinners, even though we did not deserve to be loved by Him, and, and there was no real reason for Him that would benefit Him to bring wretched people like us into His family. He chose to care about us and to love our hearts. He desired to make us clean and holy. And so He did so by sending His Son. Paul thought that the Galatians that he is writing this letter to had come to know God in that way, with that experiential, intimate knowledge. He and Barnabas had preached that true gospel among them. They had planted the seed of truth, and it seemed as though that seed was growing and that God was having victory in the Galatian churches. But the problem that we're going to encounter today is this. We have an enemy and the enemy doesn't give up so easily, friends. Salvation is not just something that we're going to experience one day and then we just kind of go on and let that be a part of our history but we don't think about it anymore. This spiritual battle rages around us. Galatians 4, 9, the second half. Paul says, How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? These Galatians who had been given this new understanding of God that by grace they are being saved. It's not something they have to earn. It's not something that they have to prove that they deserve, but rather God has so wonderfully and generously lavished love upon them. And yet He is concerned for these friends of His. He's concerned because it appears as though they are turning back to a way of life that is based on their own merit, their own ability to keep laws and to do what is right and wrong. What is he talking about when he mentions these worthless elementary principles of the world? There has been a, quite a bit of theological debate among commentaries and those who write uh, about Scripture and how to understand it properly. What does he mean by these worthless elementary principles of the world? And even how should that phrase be translated? 
Is he merely talking about laws and rules? Are the elementary principles of the world just the basics of right and wrong? Or is it the Mosaic law proper? This is the second time that he has mentioned this phrase, the elementary principles. Remember in Galatians 4.3, he says, In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Both times explaining that the Galatians were under the yoke of these elementary principles. They were somehow con uh, contained by them. And in one sense, yes, the elementary principles of the world seem to refer to the Mosaic Law, that the false teachers were trying to lure these Galatians into believing they had to adhere to perfectly if they wanted to be saved. But Paul is talking about something more here than simply rules and regulations. He is talking about what is truly behind the false teaching that he's been battling against, this false teaching that has begun to infiltrate Galatia and has begun to threaten his friends in those churches. Paul is talking about a spiritual enemy who would like to use the good law of God as a means of entrapping the unsuspecting Galatians and robbing them again of their freedom. In 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, this is a, a letter written far later than the Galatian letter, Paul would one day go on to warn his friend Timothy and say, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Let's not make the mistake of thinking that this threat of demonic deception is only going to happen in the end times, sometimes far away. We are living in later days right now. We are living in the era of grace, and the enemy is working overtime to try to get us to believe in anything that doesn't match the truth of what Scripture has taught us. Paul is battling against bad doctrine. But bad doctrine is not just a threat to our freedom or our understanding. It is nothing less than spiritual warfare. When someone tries to teach us things that are contrary to what God wanted to communicate to us in the Word, then we are under threat of spiritual warfare. Look again at verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Paul's not referring to mere rules here. He's referring to persons, isn't he? And we can see that he's not referring to human persons because he feels compelled to clarify that these beings are not gods. They are obviously some kind of non-human entity, demonic forces that, because they are not human, could possibly be mistaken for gods. In reality, these spiritual forces, these rival spiritual beings are counterfeits of God and have no real business ruling our lives. False doctrine is incredibly dangerous to us because it is more than just superstition. It is the deliberate effort of spiritual forces of wickedness, demons, gods with a little g, if you will, even Satan himself, to cause our weak minds to embrace an idea of God that is twisted and distorted and no, no, in no way resembling the truth. Paul reveals this spiritual threat to us through his letter to the churches. And so there are many other areas that we're going to reference this morning where Paul makes note of these things because we want to see here that every congregation needs to be aware 
And this isn't just a problem that was particular to the Galatians, but we also need to keep our eyes open to these threats of, of spiritual warfare where the enemy would have us deceived and shake our faith in this God who we've come to worship today. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8. In the Corinthian letter, Paul does take the time to make sure that we're not unaware of these forces that try to dissuade us. Starting in verse 4, it says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So what the Corinthian church is dealing with here is slightly different than what the Galatian church was dealing with. They are dealing with the question about ethics and behavior. What should they and should they not do in living in a world that is dominated by secular ideas and that is filled with, with pagan religions and false ideas of truth? It was very common for meat uh, that was sold in the marketplace in Corinth to have been sacrificed at one of the temples to pagan and foreign gods, false gods that existed in that city. And many of the Gentile converts who had come to trust in Jesus Christ used to worship at those temples to pagan gods. And so there was confusion about whether or not Christian believers in Corinth should just give up eating meat altogether for fear that perhaps eating meat sacrificed to idols might confuse some of the brothers and make them think that they were participating again in those old ceremonies that they used to be a part of before Christ saved them out of that false thinking. And so here the Apostle Paul is trying to give them some clarity. He assures them that the God of the Bible is not just one of many gods that people may choose to worship. Okay, I... You know, I kind of like the features of this God instead of this God, so I'm going to go with this God. Or this God has, has more benefits available to me, so I'm going to go to this God. That's not how it is. You know, religion is not a smorgasbord where we look at all these philosophies and we think, what's going to work best in my life? True religion is the fact that there is a God who exists. And He has revealed Himself to the world. And if we desire to be close to that God, we've got to ask Him to show us who He really is. We don't want to make up a false image of God in our own mind or, or just choose one of many of man's ideas of who God is. We want to know the true God. And so he assures them that God is not just one of many gods to choose from. Still there do exist so-called gods in heaven and in earth. And these spiritual rivals have some power. They have some influence. But their power doesn't hold a candle to the power of the true God. Only He has the right to be our Father and tell us how to live. Only He sustains us. And we exist because of Him alone, not because of these other spiritual entities. While these rival spiritual forces are not properly gods, He makes it a point to warn us that if someone does not have a clear knowledge of who these spirits are and the threat that they pose, then they might become deceived by their twisted false doctrines. And so though he says it's really not going to hurt you to eat that meat in, in the marketplace that's been sacrificed to another idol because they're not really gods, you still need to practice caution because those gods who are trying to, gods with a little g, who are trying to deceive people can still cause your brothers and sisters who are weaker in the faith and don't really understand, could cause them to stumble. 
So we need to be aware of these threats, these land, spiritual landmines that might do us harm if we're not looking out for the spiritual warfare that surrounds them. These spiritual beings are influential. They have some kind of dominion and power. And they desire to rule, and at times they rule over the hearts of the ignorant, of those who are not aware of the truth. These men and women become enslaved to these spiritual forces whose dwelling places are, as we see in Scripture here, heavenly, meaning that they exist in a realm different than the natural world, and yet they exert their influence here on people like us. We see more evidence of this spiritual battle in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You can flip a couple pages to the right. Verses 20 through 22, the Apostle Paul says, No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than Him? So as Paul is pointing out to us here, it is best to think of these spiritual rivals not as gods so much, but as demons, spiritual powers who use their limited freedoms to try and disrupt God's plans and injure the people that he so dearly loves. The twisted doctrines of demons would try to accomplish two goals. They want us to, to think less of God. If they can cause us to consider God to be more manlike, more mortal, more flawed, then they have accomplished their goal in our lives. And if they can't do that, then they would love to make us think more of ourselves. False doctrine is so typically characterized by these two problems, that they make us think less of this God who we have come to worship today, who is holy, whose thoughts are not our thoughts and whose ways are not our ways, who is so pure and perfect, who is absolutely without flaw, the enemy would have us think less of this God, would make, him, make us think of him as a God who doesn't know all things and has to wait on us, who, who has to learn about us and who has to, to watch and, and discern time as it unfolds before him. But that's not the true God. We serve a God who is all-knowing. We serve a God who has known from the beginning of the world whom would be his. False doctrine wants us to believe a God who can only do so much and who can only save so many when in reality the scripture tells us that we have a God of all power who is not limited in what he can accomplish. If there is anything good and worth accomplishing, then God can do it. So these false doctrines want us to have a small view of the God that we have come to worship today who is so great and so grand that words can hardly even describe him. And these enemies want us to think more of ourselves. These false doctrines would kindle in us a type of pride that would make us think beyond what we should of who we are and what we are capable of. Let me give you an example of one of these false doctrines that is so deadly to man in our society today. It resolves around the doctrine of prayer. When we think about prayer, we need to ask ourselves the question, who truly is God? Is He the one who is in control? Is He the one who has authority? Or is he just some spiritual power we can tap into, that we can manipulate and we can use for our own devices? Because there is a massive amount of false doctrine floating around regarding prayer. Some people masking, uh, masquerading as preachers of light have 
been teaching that prayer is a secret reservoir of power. That if we can learn the power of our own words as we pray things that we desire to have happen, if we can in faith trust that they will happen, if we can claim them, then God must obey our claim. That He must do what we pray and ask Him to do. The Word Faith Movement has convinced thousands and thousands of people that God is not in the position of authority, that He is rather in the position of servanthood. In the, in the idea that if we just pray the right way and with the right kind of faith, that God has no choice but to answer our prayer by giving us what we want. But what does that make man to be? That makes man to be God. Suddenly the one that has created us is at our beck and call. He has to respond to the whim of our heart when the whole story of Scripture, the whole of redemptive history, has been God breaking through our sin to return us to a right understanding that He is the one who is on the throne. And that while we bear His image, and there is much honor in that, and we are, are in a position of envy that we get to be near to God and reflect His goodness and glory and love, so it is not a small thing to be a human being. Nevertheless, He is the one who is God. We are His servants. And when we pray, we ought to ask that His will be done in our lives, not that our will would be done. So false doctrine is a, is a demonic way for the enemy to try to put us on the throne in our own minds and to push God off the throne so that we might treat Him wrongly. And there's great danger in that. By trying to lure the Galatians back into a salvation that was dependent upon works, these false teachers were trying to make them think more of themselves. They were attempting to lure these Galatians into trusting their own righteousness rather than simply trusting the righteousness of Jesus Christ which washed clean their sin. And there was evidence that these Galatians were beginning to fall under that sway. We read in verse 10 of our passage in Galatians 4 today, where Paul says, You observe days and months and seasons and years. This is most likely in reference to the observance of Jewish liturgical calendar. In other words, the types of things that Orthodox Jewish people would be careful to observe on a religious basis throughout the year. Days could be referring strictly to keeping the Sabbath on, on the Saturday, that they must uh, not take too many steps on the Saturday, they must not carry a very heavy load, they must be very cautious uh, to not pick any grain on the Sabbath. And if somebody was to be circumcised and to come back under the yoke of the law, as the, the Jewish Christian teachers were trying to teach the Galatians to do, then they would be underneath that law. They would be holding to those Old Testament standards of Sabbath behavior. Months probably refers to Numbers 10.10, which mentions rituals that were celebrated at new moons. Seasons probably refer to primary festivals of, of Passover, of Pentecost, of Tabernacles, these these festivals that happen throughout different important times of the year where the nation of Israel would gather together and, and participate in, in, ritual, uh, in religious activity that pointed them back to Yahweh. These are all part of the Old Testament covenant, but they're not part of, of what God has made the church today beholden to. We don't have to follow in those patterns as they did in the Old Testament. Years probably refers to Sabbath years. When the fields were to be left fallow, or the year of Jubilee, when those who had gotten themselves into debt and had sold themselves into indentured servanthood for a time had to be released 
under the Jewish law. So there are all these stipulations and rules and regulations in accordance with the Old Testament Mosaic law that perhaps Paul had heard these Galatians were starting to, to keep again. We don't get the impression that they were fully believing yet this doctrine of having to be back under the law and taking Jesus and adding that to our works, but they were in danger of that. And it seems here that perhaps Paul has heard from a report that they were beginning to walk again in the liturgical calendar calendar of the Jewish people. That law does not rule us any longer. And Paul is pointing out that they need not follow those days and months and seasons. Romans 14, 5-6 says, One person esteems a day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. This passage in Romans shows us that we are no longer under the burden of having to follow that strict calendar that the Old Testament followers of Yahweh had to follow. That if we desire to, to celebrate Christmas in a way that is, is pointing to the glory of Christ, then so be it. I know some Christians who, who don't want to celebrate Christmas because they feel that it's too connected to the, the, uh, the commercial mindset of America. And so they, they believe in the advent of Jesus Christ. They celebrate His coming, but they don't do it in a, in a, in a holiday sort of way. And if that's that's the conviction of their heart. That's okay. We're not under the yoke of a calendar that says you must do this on this day and this on this day and this on this day. We've been set free from that. Colossians 2.20, 20, uh, verse 20 through 23, says, if, you, if with Christ you died to the elemental principles of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. In other words, denying the body and denying the self seems to be a religious practice, but he goes on to say, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This whole series, as we're working through Galatians, has, has been about setting free from the legalistic heart that is so natural to the hearts of men. The Galatian letter helps us to see that we live by grace now, that we are not under the yoke of the law as we used to be. <clears throat> legalism does not save. And further, beyond that, legalism doesn't really make us more moral either. True morality doesn't come from behavior modification. It comes from a changed heart. And changed hearts only come from putting our full faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so how do we defend ourselves against these spiritual forces? If they are something that are dangerous to us, we need to be aware of them. How do we deal with their, with their influence? We can return to Ephesians chapter 6 to gain wisdom from what the Apostle Paul teaches the church in Ephesus. He says in verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having 
done all to stand firm. Another passage of Scripture that plainly shows us that the true battle that we're fighting here is not against flesh and blood. It's not against the things of this material world, but rather there is a grander battle waging about us at all times, a battle for the soul, a battle for belief. And how do we stand against that? We do it by taking on the full armor of God, by letting the truth of Jesus Christ be our defense in our strong fortress. We stand against the spiritual forces that would wage war against us by running into the sanctuary of Jesus Christ. His truth alone is what shelters us from their lies, from their advances. Our battle is against non-physical rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers. And our champion is himself a cosmic power, the greatest of all cosmic powers in heavenly places. Our defense is the armor of God. And if you've read through the armor of God, you, you might remember some of these pieces. And I'm not going to go through each one of them in depth. But think about how each one of these things encourages us to know the gospel and to know it clearly. So much of our defense stems from a strong understanding of the means by which Jesus has saved us. Listen to this. We are told to put on the breastplate of righteousness. That means that the righteousness that we have is not from within us. It is Christ's righteousness that has been put onto us. We have been atoned for and covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're told to put on the shoes of the gospel of, pre, uh, of peace. So the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ has come, lived a perfect life, free from sin, so he, he owed no debt to God, and yet he willingly paid the great debt of sin for us giving his life and being crucified on a cross so that he might be put to death in our place. He was buried and on the third day rose, uh, rose again from the grave so he could show his victory over death. He was not just a man, but he was truly God in the flesh as well and could not be truly slain. This gospel gives us such great peace. And the more we ground ourselves in the true understanding of this, this salvation that is scriptural salvation, the less susceptible we will be to these spiritual forces of deception. We're told to put on the helmet of salvation. So much of our enemy's schemes are mental schemes. They want us to doubt. They want us to be worried and to be anxious and to, to think twice about these amazing promises that God has made to us. But salvation should be a helmet for us, protecting our mind from the deceptive things that our enemy would whisper into our ear. We have a belt of truth that we are to put on. The belt of truth keeps us girded for the Lord, ready to do battle against our enemy. When we think about what is virtuous and good and holy and true, we won't be hindered by deception, by maybes and theories that men put together to take our eyes off of what we know to be true from the Scripture. We are given a shield of faith, faith in the true Jesus, the one who came and lived and died for us, can fight off so many of the fiery darts of the enemy who would deceive us. And we're given the sword of his word. We've seen Paul wield the sword of the word as he has convinced these Galatians or worked to convince them from the very scripture itself that this grace that we have received was forecast even to Abraham, even before Abraham, and it is the faith that we should stand in. So we have been graciously set free from legalism by Jesus Christ. The law does not have to be our framework for spiritual abuse at the hands of God's enemies anymore. 
And yet some are so attached to the law, they are so familiar with this keeping of rules and, and, and living in the Jewish mode of life that they'd rather believe the lie of the false gods which say that you can be freer by following a salvation you win for yourself than you can be by just simply putting your trust in Jesus Christ. So verse 11, Paul is revealing again the heart of a pastor here for these people. He says, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. There is a concern on his part that though he taught truthfully to them, if they are unaware of the the possibility of being deceived, if they are not keenly observing the teachings of others with sharp eyes and a discerning heart, that they might be caught up in the current of this false teaching and drift away from what is true. We have to acknowledge, brothers and sisters, that there are seeds that fall among the thorns and the thistles, aren't there? When Jesus talks about the gospel being a seed that is sown among soil, one of the soils described is the soil that is itself rich and full of nutrients, but it is also a soil that has been polluted by weeds and thorns and thistles which grow around a little seedling that begins to show interest in the gospel and chokes out its light and steals the nutrients from the soil so that little tiny sproutling cannot mature and bear true fruit. All the labor that Paul had put into the Galatians was in jeopardy. If they were to simply return to the obstinate slavery from which they had been freed. But he has not given up hope in them. He continues to shepherd them in Christ, to stand in the truth as a soldier of the saving gospel of Jesus so that the Galatians may see the light, so that they might reject the lies of the demonic forces that would deceive them. And so friends, as we hear these warnings to the Galatians, I pray that it causes us to desire to grow up in our understanding of the gospel. When we see that there truly is an opposition to the truth, a force, a spiritual army that wants to do us harm, that we would not take lightly our responsibility to get into the Word and to be on our knees daily seeking fellowship and relationship with this God who has called us into His family through adoption. One of the greatest evidences of the Holy Spirit truly residing in us is this, that we will begin to identify the difference between the true gospel and the counterfeits put forth by these spiritual enemies of our God. If the Galatians are truly believers, which no doubt many of them were, they had been afflicted, they were were given false information, they needed correction, but I believe that many of those Galatians were true believers. If that was the case, then these false teachers would not be able to turn them back to that legalism long term. They would heed the warnings of their apostle Paul. They would see the truth laid out to them in Scripture and they would return to that truth that they had originally believed. If you are truly in Christ, then you will not be lured away. I do not preach this message here and draw attention to these spiritual forces to make you chew your nails and and, and agonize over the fact that you might lose your salvation one day. That is absolutely the farthest thing from the truth. I take you to Romans chapter 8 as we begin to conclude our passage today. Verses 37 through 39, the Apostle Paul says with boldness, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, 
nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you sit in this seat today in this church, and if you are not in Christ, I urge you to seek the Lord out. I urge you to come to a realization that we are in a battle that God is waging war against the armies of darkness and the armies of darkness would love to claim your soul as a prize. That this world is full of deception and lies that would want you to believe a different version of God than is truly real. I would urge you to seek out the true gospel of Jesus Christ, to be a thoughtful reader of the word and to see for yourself if the things that we preach are true. Don't just go home today and say, what a bunch of weirdos. I don't, I don't need to think about that stuff. But go home and open up that scripture and see if you really believe the things that we're talking about here today. Is there a spiritual realm that is above and beyond what you see here with your physical eyes? Is there more to life than the material? And if there is, you need to know what you think about this God. And you need to know what you think about His Son, Jesus Christ. We would love as a church to help you today make a decision to follow after Him, to put your faith and trust in the Son of God so that today might be the day of salvation for you, that you might hear that last passage that we read in Romans and think, wow, that belongs to me. That there is neither height nor depth nor any other created thing. There is no force, no power, no teaching that can pull me away from knowing this God who has given his life on a cross to know me so that I might understand him, that I might experience him. Not just a head knowledge, not just that I might be vaguely aware that he is there, but that I might have a personal relationship with this God. So if you are not in Christ, I urge you to seek him today. I urge you to step into a relationship with him by faith. And, and I pray that the Holy Spirit is even working in your heart today, that he brought you here for that purpose. But if you are in Christ, if you are a believer in Jesus, then I, I urge you to make a decision right here and right now that you will not settle for being vaguely acquainted with your God. That you will not say it's good enough to just know a little bit about him. It's good enough for me to just know the very basic building blocks of my faith and, and that's fine by me. I'll spend my time looking at other things now. No, make that decision today that you will no longer be content to have just a head knowledge of this amazing, diverse, dynamic, and wonderful God or even just a scholarly knowledge where you seek books and you seek theologies, but you don't walk with your God. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in light of the threats that exist today, draw near to Jesus. Walk with Him. Live side by side and experience the knowledge of God that you will seek Him in His Word, that you will seek Him in prayer, that you will seek that intimate closeness by which it will be impossible for the enemy to deceive you into believing anything about God that does not come from God's own revelation of himself. May he ever guard our hearts and mind in Christ Jesus.